Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. Our epistle reading is from 1 Peter 1 through 25. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was with not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you might have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all things are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our gospel reading is from Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Listen once again for the word of the Lord. Now on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our own group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, 
but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish and slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near to the village where they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Peter's first letter to the early church is consumed with Eastertide resurrection hope, the kind of transformational joy that can only come from a true reckoning with the grace we receive in Christ. His letter is written to a group of congregations facing persecution for their beliefs, and when interpreted through this lens, his letter might come across as less than pastorally sensitive. Peter speaks as though he were halfway to heaven already, singing in harmony with Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, the road to heaven is long and narrow, paved with the building blocks of sanctification, but even on this side of heaven, the view at the end makes the entire journey worthwhile. In verse 17, Peter likens the life of faith to a sojourn in which we fellow Christians are to be like foreigners. And how could it be otherwise? We have been born again, made of imperishable seed to live the remainder of our earthly days among the perishable elements of creation. We are eternal things walking through a perishing world. I don't know if Peter was familiar with the philosopher Plato, but he draws from the same well when he writes, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defects. I believe Peter has in mind Plato's unique perspective on what is real and what only appears to be real. More on that in a moment. Peter also borrows from Paul in his metaphor for atonement, writing that our salvation in Christ is like a financial transaction. Before Christ, our sin filled a ledger like a record of debt, a debt so deep that we could never hope to repay it. 
when Christ came, he not only paid our debt, but bought us completely such that we now belong to him. And what did he use to buy us? Not silver, not gold, says Peter. No, instead, Christ paid with his blood. This metaphor also draws on the atonement logic of the Mosaic law in which sin is forgiven through sacrifice, sacrifice of animals. The more egregious the sin, the more precious the animal sacrificed. And so Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb that frees us from our debt. But does this make sense? We know that an economy of sacrificial animals existed in Jesus' day. Birds, sheep, and other animals were bred for the sole purpose of being sacrificed to atone for someone's sins. It's this ephemeral existence that Peter compares to the perishability of silver and gold. And I'm no expert, but I believe a bar of gold will persist on earth far longer than a lamb. Gold has long been a standard of value in part because of its longevity. A lamb, on the other hand, persists as a lamb only until it grows up or is used as a sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, from this perspective, is really no different. It took place on a single day, some 2,000 years ago, and seemingly, seemingly has no persisting consequences for us. So this must mean that Peter's understanding of perishability is quite different than our own. If the efficacy of our salvation rests not on the persistence of silver and gold, but rather on the persistence of Christ's sacrifice, then we must learn how Peter understands presence and perseverance. And this brings us back to Plato. Plato believed that everything in creation corresponded to a perfect form of itself. For example, one can conceive of a chair. There are three-legged chairs, four-legged chairs, armchairs, high chairs, all kinds of chairs. And according to Plato, these can be classified as chairs because they correspond with the ultimate form of a chair, the platonic ideal of a chair, which does not exist in creation. So this means I can't go to a museum and see the platonic form of a chair, rather. Every chair I see more or less participates in this platonic form. And the same can be said for intangible things like beauty. I can witness flowers along Park Avenue participate in the platonic form of beauty. Music can witness to beauty's form. So even though I can't touch or hold the platonic form of beauty, I can encounter it throughout creation and come to recognize it. Plato uses this idea of the forms to explain reality itself. According to Plato, reality itself is a derivative or reflection of the forms, meaning our everyday perception, though it seems clear to us, is really only a shadow of how things are. This may sound familiar, as Paul also borrowed this idea from Plato when he wrote in his letter, the Corinthians, that for now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. 
Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Gold and silver, which seem to participate in imperishability, are far inferior to the blood of Christ, which itself is the seed of imperishability. If we want to know what will persist in the ages to come, we need to look at Jesus. Look to the blood of Christ that has redeemed you. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. And I wouldn't be an honest preacher if I failed to mention the double meaning Peter has in mind here. In a culture perversely obsessed with money, we are told to look beyond silver and gold to purchase our salvation. In fact, we cannot purchase our salvation at all. And so while I'll always encourage you to give sacrificially to the church in all efforts to spread the gospel, I'll also warn you that giving out of fear or shame or guilt is a fruitless endeavor. The paradox of our salvation is that even though it is infinitely costly, it can only be received freely as a gift. On Good Friday, I preached on the idea that the cross of Christ is the end of history, but the beginning of eternity. Because in the cross, the word of God, the one through whom all things were made, is put to death. So the cross must be the end of history, because without Jesus, there is no future. But the story of Jesus does not end with the cross, so it must also be the beginning of something new. Yes, the cross is the fruition of humanity's evil and sinfulness, but the cross is also the point at which sin and evil's power ends. It's the point at which we come up against God's sovereign love for humanity. In the cross, God settles our eternal fate once and for all. God's love overcomes our sin. God's yes overcomes our no. And it's this very same idea that lies behind verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Our salvation is accomplished outside the bounds of history. The grace imparted in Jesus' sacrifice has no expiration date because it perseveres eternally. Those of you familiar with the acronym TULIP as a summary of Calvinist theology will know that the P in TULIP stands for perseverance of the saints. And it's this idea that once God has elected us for salvation, there's nothing we can do to revoke that election. But verse 20 here challenges that view. In verse 20, we find that it's, it's not us, the saints, but Jesus himself who has persevered for our sake and who will continue to persevere until we are taken up into God. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. Jesus has become the token by which we are redeemed through his sacrifice, through his example, through his victory over the powers of sin and death. We have been reconciled to God. Verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. We come to know the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. 
Peter says that we are asked to put our faith in Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. Once again, we find Plato's forms used to explain what is happening in the story of salvation. First, we find that Christ's blood is the gold standard of persistence, because by Christ's blood, we are eternally reconciled to God in a way that persists so long as Jesus persists forever. And now we're being told that Jesus came to us in the very form of God, emptied himself, and took the form of a slave. If we want to know God, we must look at Jesus. If we want to know what is meaningful, what is worth preserving, what is eternally significant, we must look to Jesus. In this mortal life, we are given an undetermined number of days, and in these days we must make sense of our reality. Scripture tells us that most of what we encounter in our reality, it's not real in the eternal sense. What we believe persists will eventually fall away. What we see as a standard of value is, in fact, temporary. Scripture bears witness to this distortion. Our Luke reading tells the story of the apostles on the road to Emmaus. They meet a fellow traveler and explain to him what has happened to Jesus in the days since his crucifixion. They speak from a position of confusion and uncertainty. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. The two disciples then listen to this traveler interpret the story of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, and when finally they reach Emmaus and sit down for dinner, the traveler sits at the table with them, and it says, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Because of their preoccupation with the struggles they've endured, they fail to recognize the presence of Christ in their midst. They're so focused on the temporary, they miss the eternal. It isn't that the struggles they face in the wake of Christ's death are insignificant. It's that there's something far more significant happening to them, something more definitive, more consequential. And this brings me back to my initial thought. Peter uses this logic of perishability and imperishability to seemingly dismiss the struggles of the early church, but on closer inspection, this isn't true. It wasn't true for the early church, and it isn't true for us. The bad things that happen to you, the loss of loved ones, the struggles with illness and anxiety do matter. The sins that you struggle to fight, the sins that plague those in your life, they matter. They matter so much that God found it impossible for them to continue. God would not let the evil that appears to define this world have the final say, and this is the heart of Peter's gospel. Peter is actually making an apocalyptic declaration. Peter is saying, the fabric of reality properly understood is stitched together by the love of God. When we peel back the illusory curtain that muddles our perception to reveal reality as God created it to be, we see that all things hold together in Christ. 
They hold together eternally for our sake, and they hold together for the purpose of reconciling us to God. The ultimate form of God is Jesus, the same Jesus that went to the cross for our sake. Please understand me. We were not made for the cross, but the cross was made for us. We were not made to suffer in isolation from God, but the cross was made to reconcile us to God. We weren't made to endure the tragedies of violence, addiction, loneliness, or poverty. We weren't made for the purpose of sending Christ to the cross, but Christ was made incarnate to keep us from bearing the cross. In other words, we were not made to suffer, but Christ was sent to save us. God never willed our suffering, but spared nothing, not even his own son, to put an end to our suffering. So the struggles we face in this life are real and deserve our empathy, but they cannot define us. They will not win. They do not have the last word because the last word has already been spoken. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And the word of the Lord is this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So go, do the work that is yours to do. Purify yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another and love one another deeply from the heart. Amen.